Hello, this is Meta Bakajolo, writer for the Trade and Economics Department. Carolina Byrne, writer for the Cultural Relations Department. And Rite Shadokar, writer for the American Affairs Department. And welcome to another episode of The Global Generation, the International Youth Politics Forum's podcast. With the current state of the global economy, numerous industries have been suffering, with countries scrambling to boost their industrial output. But these battles have been lasting in an extremely controversial industry, oil. Actions by various governments in the oil industry have been rooted in various disputes and suspicious decisions, raising the question of the ethical, environmental, as well as the economic backings for such a resource. The oil industry has been long-lasting and governments are staunch supporters of it, while it directly conflicts with green efforts to reverse the effects of things like climate change. If we don't take concrete action soon, the damage to the environment will be irreversible. Oil as an industry also represents a major issue of colonization, supremacy, and dominance. Significant battles and wars have been waged in the pursuit of oil, like the Pacific War, Stalingrad, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the U.S. wars in Iraq, and so on. If we continue down the dark path we've been focusing on, it'll be too late for us to change the path and redirect ourselves towards a better future. The first topic we'll be looking at is how oil has affected the world in terms of imperialism. Um, So ever since the 1950s, the oil has been regarded as one of the most important natural commodities found on this planet. We all know that nations use it to power all of their industries. Uh, They use it to transport people and to keep people warm. However, April 1998 marked the first time the U.S. imported the majority of the petroleum it consumed. Ever since then, efforts have been taken to consolidate control of oil, mostly through the use of the military. So several examples of this concerning the the U.S. military have been the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan post 9-11, for access to the Caspian Sea Basin, uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, U.S. military activities in the Gulf of Guinea and Africa, and more recently, increased hostility towards Iran and Venezuela, um, all showing that there's this new dangerous era of energy imperialism. And today, to kind of hit this point home, there are 60 to 70 thousand U.S. troops positioned in the Middle East and dozens of U.S. military bases in the Middle East just so uh, the U.S. can consolidate its power, just so the U.S. can maintain its hegemonic status over oil in the Middle East. And a lot of these issues don't apply just to the United States. For example, a lot of the media coverage for the Russian invasion of Georgia, an ally of the United States, thought um, the, the violence was merely gratuitous, and it seemed like there was no plausible explanation. But because they had little access to resources like natural gas, oil, and fossil fuels, they became a linchpin as a transit country for the export of Caspian fossil fuels. So while a lot of the issues that we see within regions in the, in the entirety of the world seem that it's just gratuitous violence, it happens to be for something like a resource war. Because of Russia's interest in the industry itself, they want a significant power grab. And this Russia-Georgia war is a classic resource war in pursuit of economic gains in order to dominate the industry. So like Mete said, a lot of the issues that we see is that it leads to severe occupations and it leads to various 
problems with power and control throughout a lot of countries in the world in the world. And it affects millions of individuals as they try to go about their daily lives. But we see that because these countries want power, they want access to these commodities, it becomes a greater issue in terms of governmental power, specifically because they have the ability to use it as an input as it powers a lot of other industries. The strength of the oil industry is directly correlated to the strength of a lot of other economies in the global world. Yeah, and Reed just touched on this uh, really shortly, but one thing that is really important to consider when we talk about energy imperialism, when one nation goes into another nation to extract their oil, uh, one thing that's really important to consider is the effect this has on the lives of everyday people. When we think of the Middle East, we normally think of like Middle Eastern governments. However, the Middle East is filled with regular people just like everywhere else in the world. And when we tell you that there are 60 to 70,000 U.S. troops positioned in those areas, we're telling you that when somebody who lives in the Middle East opens their door and walks outside, they're going to be running into those U.S. troops. They're stationed like everywhere around the country. They're stationed on the coasts. Um, and it's, it's a very dystopian way of, of living life. Yeah, exactly. I fully agree with that. A lot of the issues that we see is that the occupations of a lot of soldiers affects the daily lives, and it's not just the occupation. The industry itself has a significant impact on the daily lives of these individuals. Especially in developing countries, these industries always give out a helping hand to say, we're here to help your economy expand. But what really ends up happening is, is that they just take their shares of the oil, and they really don't care about what happens to the well-being and how they're direct affecting the country's well-being in and of itself. So these occupations merely become a question of grabbing power and simply leaving once the oil has been already drained up. As one of those everyday people who live in the uh, Middle East, although I do live in a developed country, there is definitely a lot of military presence, although here, as opposed to other places in the region, it is a lot more subtle. For example, there's just, you'll see the occasional U.S. Coast Guard ship go by or um, a lot of my friends' parents are in the militaries of loads of different countries, not just the United States, but there is definitely um, varying degrees of that military presence from all over the world in oil-rich nations. Just like we were continually talking about, one of the primary issues that we see with energy imperialism is that these countries are looking to grow their economy and grow their power in the world. But with the current state of the economy, especially with the COVID-19 outbreaks, the oil industry has particularly been suffering due to the lack of transportation and travel throughout the entire world. Economic analysts are reporting that coronavirus has left the fossil fuel industry broken as a result of social distancing guidelines. And as a result of the global health emergency declared by the World Health Organization and various countries announcing their own particular lockdowns, curfew orders, and the demand for oil has taken severe hits. And because of this, oil prices have gone obscenely low. And for the first time in history in April, prices actually went negative for getting a gallon or a barrel of oil in a lot of companies, which can be quite problematic in terms of the industry itself. And while we may be as consumers benefiting from this with very low gas prices, it 
won't be helpful in terms of the overall industry and how our economy will bounce back from such a recession. It's also important to note the United States' reliance on oil. Over the past decade, the U.S. has steadily been decreasing imports on oil with a desire to increase its own production. However, this does pose many challenges. For example, it's expensive, it's very labor-intensive, and as a result, oil prices largely impact the domestic sector of oil in the industry, with investors' profits, jobs, and large portions of the United States' aggregate economy being directly linked to the demand and therefore the price. While planes are grounded and cars aren't running, oil pumps are still drilling, leading to a massive surplus of storage, which means that there is a direct correlation between transportation and oil consumption. As Ree was just saying, if these industries aren't thriving, then the oil industry suffers and vice versa. If the prices drop, so do transport costs, and things like airline tickets also fall. And speaking from personal experience, my dad is an airline pilot, and with, especially with the COVID-19 crisis, it has been you know, a really difficult time within my own family and within families, people that I know, to sort of deal with that. Um, but generally speaking, lower oil prices would benefit other industries, um, as it's commonly used and factored into the resource price of production for many economies. And what we need to understand about why oil is so valuable and why the COVID uh, pandemic is having such a negative toll on the world in terms of the oil industries is because everything pretty much ties back to oil. Like every industry runs on oil and other gases. So when oil is decreasing in economic value, it basically screws with everything else. Like plane tickets, as Caroline was saying, uh, are affected transportation costs. Um, pretty much every industry suffers when the oil industry suffers. So that's why all of this chaos is going on regarding the pandemic. Right. And even though we see a lot of things like transitioning with things like nuclear power, wind power, solar energy, all of those things are merely temporary solutions. Because of the industry is built up and heavy reliance on things like oil, it's going to be very difficult for industries to be able to change easily, especially in a time like now. A lot of planes are actually running empty, they're either grounded, and they're running and operating at a severe loss, which can be extremely problematic. And while we as consumers may be benefiting from extremely low prices, it's going to be taking a severe toll on the industry. For example, I had a lot of friends at the beginning of the whole break that we've been taking from school to just be able to go on a plane and go to Hawaii for a week. And when they came back, the planes were running entirely empty. So while this may be extremely beneficial for us as the normal citizens going about our daily lives, it can be extremely problematic for our economy. And it's going to continue to worsen because of something that's especially troubling about the times right now. The U.S. Oil Fund, which is the organization in, in charge of buying and selling oil, they actually use something that's called paper oil. And essentially what paper oil is, is that it's a contract that gives you the right to buy oil at set prices. What this means is that the U.S. oil fund has been forced to buy oil prices at high prices, but they're being forced to sell them at extremely low prices, which is why they're going negative. It's great to be a consumer right now, but that's only really one side of the story. As prices continue to lower, countless industries will continue to see the adverse effects of low prices. It's essentially just a dream that's too good to be true for us. While states are still starting to open back up, 
and we might see um, an eventual spike in transportation and eventual prices in oil. The road to a stable oil economy as a result of the current pandemic is a difficult and long path because they'll have to rebound from shockingly low prices. And a lot of various industries have been providing current solutions. So they include banning imports and buying reserves. But the problem with both of these is that they're only really temporary solutions because they won't help with recovery since a sharp increase in demand won't suddenly help the prices shock back to their normal levels. And NBC recently published an article that wrote about the effects of oil prices, and they're likely to spill over into 2021. And until we see prices of around $40 per barrel at a minimum, our progress is going to be extremely slow. But now that the U.S. oil fund is consolidating, analysts are worried that the U.S. is preparing for prices to plunge even further. So shares could plunge below $1, and prices can continue to drop, and they're already in the negatives. So while the current economy is suffering, it can bring out potential progress on other fronts, but until we see significant progress in terms of prices, our economy will continue to take hits. Yeah, that leads into our next topic, which is considering oil and the environment. So we all know how terrible oil is for the environment. There are so many other uh, alternatives like wind, uh, nuclear, solar power that are much cleaner um, and are pretty much equally effective. It's just that the infrastructure for them is not really here yet. But what we're seeing as a result of this pandemic and as a result of oil sales going down is increased investment into other energy alternatives. So Goldman Sachs recently reported that the prices of oil are currently lower than it costs to ship it. This imbalance in the supply and demand of oil is leading to countries kind of trying to shift their dependence off of oil and onto other things. So more countries are needing to invest into other energy alternatives such as nuclear, wind, and solar power. However, industry analysts are troubled that the low prices in oil might lead to long-term investment to prop up the industry. Um, so what this means is that people are worried that because countries are already so heavily relying on oil, that these shifts that they're trying to make uh, as a result of this pandemic are only going to be temporary changes, kind of putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. And because countries are so heavily reliant, they're going to switch back to oil once it is comfortable to do so. The Obama administration's efforts to reduce the U.S.'s export of fossil fuels encouraged the United States to resort to desperate measures, and this even led to them engaging in resource wars simply for them to gain access to the commodity. And while we saw with this administration significant progress with things like the Clean Power Plan, which mandated that states regulate their output and pollution with their fossil fuels, the problem that we see is that the legacy of the administration is just that it's now one that produces and utilizes far more oil than Saudi Arabia. And even, in fact, Morgan Stanley, a renowned investment banking company, has put out estimates saying that our current oil crisis will begin to shave off anywhere between 
0.15 to 0.35% off of the U.S. GDP in a single quarter. And those percentages may sound obscenely low, but when the U.S. GDP is up in tens of trillions of dollars, fractions of percentage points equate to billions of dollars. And thankfully, we're not in the 1990s, because back then, companies like Exxon and British Petroleum or BP were the most important companies in the world, not tech and alternative industries. And because of our current situation, it's forcing these industries to reevaluate their concerns and their outputs. And we're even spurring innovation. And while we see significant progress and stride, the issue that we see is that the profits of the oil industry and the quality of the environment, as Mete said earlier, are inversely related. So as profits continue to rise, the environment suffers. But as we improve the environment, the industry slowly erodes. Um, it becomes especially worse during events like oil spills because they're unexpected and they're ridiculously difficult to clean up. So take the Exxon Valdez oil spill. It took three years to clean the region up and close monitoring still occurs to ensure that there's no continual or late emerging impacts. And natural oil deposits themselves, interestingly enough, have minimal effects on the environment because of the natural ecosystems themselves. But once they're drilled and refined by industries, they become dangerous and harmful for the environment. It's just like any industrial development. Messing with the balance of the environment inevitably leads to its destruction. Yeah, something we all need to consider is that it's not oil that is inherently bad for the world. Um, it is what people are doing with oil. It's the fracking. It's the drilling that is done. It's the refining that's done by industries to oil that is, uh, that is really damaging the environment. Um, so what, what is going on in the world right now or what has been going on before this pandemic is that countries have been taking this oil and then manipulating it, uh, refining it, drilling it. Um, and this has been what causes a lot of environmental harm, not necessarily the oil itself. Um, I mean, where I live, I can see refineries and different oil production facilities outside my window. And, you know, with a lot of them being temporarily closed with the current social distancing guidelines, it's definitely, um, the ocean, for example, looks a lot cleaner and you can just kind of tell that when oil is being or the production of oil rather is being reduced, you can if you can literally see the impacts in just a span of what two months now, I think they've been closed, which just shows the um, adverse effects that it has on the environment as well as the extents of this. I think this also reminds me of the kind of thing that we always hear with an underlying analogy of how it's not always the issue of the environment itself. It's what we as humans are doing to it. Oil is a natural resource that we as humans found, and we found a unique way to utilize it. But it became problematic when we began overutilizing it and harming the environment. And another underlying issue with this particular industry is also the knowledge regarding the effects of its own development. An article published by The Guardian in the middle of 2017 outlines the effect of the oil industry on academia, and it's really troubling. So, for example, in 2017, Harvard hosted an event promoting it as, quote, finding energy's rational middle, end quote. But it was actually sponsored by Shell Oil Company. 
The director of screening hosted there called the, quote, Rational Middle Energy Series was actually a VP of a family-owned fossil fuel company. And throughout the whole screening series, Harvard pocketed nearly $4 million. So while they were educating people on the effects of such development, they were only talking about one side of the story. And they were talking about how they were helping the economy. And they were just talking about PR, and they were essentially just using it as a boost for their own public relations. The film promoted natural gas as clean, stating that low carbon renewable energy was a really far, lo- it was a very long time off, which is really just an opinion influenced by the industry leaders themselves because of the fact that they feel threatened by innovation and the future of it in and of itself. And the whole education system and the knowledge of the industry is entirely tainted. And funding from companies like Shell, BP, and Chevron dominate Harvard's research regarding climate policy and energy. So it becomes an entirely different ballgame when our own research is tainted. And until we can objectively recognize our own impact on the world, we're never going to be able to take that step forward and fix those problems that we've caused. Control over oil is not held by everyday people. It is held by really, really powerful corporations, like Rhi was saying, Shell, BP, Chevron. And these corporations have taken it upon themselves to kind of manipulate the public's understanding of what oil is, what oil is used for, and how it affects the world around us because it benefits them. We need to acknowledge that information being sponsored by these companies is not information that benefits us. It's not information that is necessarily true. It is information that benefits these companies. So we must be aware of how the oil academia has been tainted by corporate interest, and we need to reevaluate our knowledge of the industry based off of that. So oil is not only really lucrative for private organizations and large companies, but it also affects the decision-making processes of large countries, which exacerbates the issues that we see throughout the industry as well as the environment itself. Um, Especially in countries like Russia, where one of their top energy executives have released a statement where they're planning to reduce their production by one-fifth by shutting down their wells as they've been confronted with this geyser of unstoppable oil, but they don't have anywhere to store it, um, which is an extreme change of tune from previous arguments, which we'll get into later. But Alexander Novak, who is Russia's energy minister, has said, quote, the level of compliance with the deal will be 100 percent, end quote. And Moscow has since committed to, sh- to cutting about two million barrels per day, about a fifth of its previous output. However, this has posed significant uh, problems as well as controversy. As for years after the Soviet breakdown, OPEC has tried to entice Moscow into these production cutting agreements, as if you combine oil and natural gas, Russia is the world's largest petroleum exporting country. It is also argued that Russia reaped the rewards of price support without carrying any of the burdens of cutting down their own production. Russia has resisted most OPEC treaties to cut production in order to prop up prices, claiming that the climate there was too cold to accommodate this. They stipulated that when drills were overfilled with permafrost, which is ground that has continuously remained frozen for two or more years. They could not be shut down, as upon their freezing, they would have to be re-drilled entirely when they were reopened. 
this has been a common argument by Russia as a justification repeatedly, such as when the oil prices collapsed in 1998 or during the global recession uh, in 2008, which are according to the OPEC's public statements. However, Thomas Reed, a Houston-based energy investor and former executive of a company with experience in Siberia, claims that it's mostly nonsense and later asserts, quote, generally an oil well will shut down just fine, end quote, thus debunking Russia's excuses. In fact, while industry officials cannot deny that Russia's cold climate does pose some unique challenges, nothing that could be, um, you know, a stopping force for them. And even before the COVID-19 pandemic, which has caused the recent collapse of oil prices, as well as the new Russia protocols, this confirmed that Russia could seemingly shut down their production seamlessly. And the Saudi Arabians have grown skeptical about the claims of cold conditions preventing the halt. In 2004, the Saudi energy minister at the time, Ali al-Nami, stormed out of a meeting after Mr. Sechin said that Russia could not cease production in accordance with his memoir, Out of the Desert. This leads to our next topic, Russia and the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, which is the intergovernmental organization that basically regulates the world's oil. I think a thing that's really important to take away from everything Carolina just said is that a lot of the power that these countries have is something that they are able to utilize to their advantage. For example, something as as simple as just calling it out for being nonsensical just shuts down all of their excuses but the odds are simply stacked against all the people who are fighting against the oil industry simply because of the power that these countries wield which plays a significant role in what they're able to get away with and how they're able to further their own power in and of itself and as we can see, it sort of creates like a feedback loop. It just continually fuels itself. Because countries like Russia already have such significant influence, they're able to use that power to their advantage and continually continually use their power to make these government organizations to just bend to their own will. I think it's also really important to emphasize the fact that throughout this whole episode, we've been focusing on the actions of large corporations or large governments that the everyday person can't control, especially considering a lot of, especially in terms of the environment, um, people who advocate for sustainability and green energy, a lot of times do try to target the everyday person as they're a lot easier to target as a demographic, but, you know, cutting down on how long you leave the lights on for or turning off the, you know, the heat when you're not home, things like that only will reduce this a small amount as opposed to large corporations which are pumping carbon dioxide and all the other greenhouse gases out constantly way more than the individual ever could. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And while we as regular people are able to affect change on a significant scale, it's a completely different story when you have the backing of a government who's advocating for these issues in, in order to reverse the effects of things like climate change and helping the environment in and of itself. And while we've seen significant strides in terms of public policy and legislation passed, we're still a far way out from making that significant progress, which begs the question of, will we be able to affect change soon enough within this industry to help these organizations realize the impact that they're having? Like Rhea's been saying, the changes to the way the world sees oil have been, in the most part, good for the world. People are decreasing their dependence on it slowly, um, as it's natural, because the peak of oil supplies has been reached, and now uh, countries are needing to find other ways. 
However, we should not take for granted the, the changes that are being made in the world regarding the oil industry. Um, we still need to remember that activism on any level helps. We still need to remember that military intervention, uh, imperialism, energy imperialism is still very much a reality for uh, everybody in the Middle East. Um, but we also need to stay hopeful that it's not going to be like this forever. Again, going back to what Ree was saying and definitely what you were saying, Mete, about um, activism, it's also, again, just to play the devil's advocate, very difficult for a lot of people to do so. Um, for example, where I live, we're governed by a monarchy. So if I you know, start speaking against sort of the energy production and the oil extraction, um, that could get some people in serious trouble, um, especially myself for speaking against um, like a sovereign ruler like that. And I think it's important for people elsewhere in the world who are very much um, privileged in the sense of being able to go out and, um, you know, be advocates, especially, for example, in the United States, where, you know, you're guaranteed free speech and the right to protest to recognize the privilege and then utilize it to also make sure that they're representing the voices of those who, you know, don't have as much of a voice or who can't have as much of a voice in these situations. I think that's something interesting that you just pointed out is that a lot of the issues have to do with the structures of government in and of itself. Like, for example, like you were saying, in a monarchy, it's much more difficult to advocate for certain positions. And I think this also points out a larger problem with the industry itself and the structural barriers that prevent us from making progress. And not only will we have significant strides, will we have to make significant strides in these industries, as well as within the government as well in order for us to make this progress but it also begins at the point of the individual so not only do we have to be able to advocate for our own selves we also have to be able to affect change on a much larger level in order for us to be able to see change within the world the oil industry has always been shrouded in controversy and the current instability of the economy is seemingly revealing the cracks in the long-standing facade in an industry as expansive and privatized as this, it's easy for the everyday person to become complacent in the havoc the industry wreaks on so many aspects, the environment, geopolitical relations, and the world's economy. Though the problems with this fossil resource are undeniable, it's also important for us to remember that oil is one of the substances that drives the world. It it drives significant growth for a myriad of countries, as well as many revolutionary advances of technology, as well as significant inventions that innovate and change the world as we know it. But it should also be about finding a balance between the environmental aspects, as well as maintaining relations between countries to prevent economic collapse. Focusing solely on the future merely drives us away from present issues, while only worrying about our current state of affairs prevents us from making progress. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Global Generation, the International Youth Politics Forum's podcast. For more information and to read articles on topics ranging from geomilitary relations to human rights, please check out our website, www.iypforum.org. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, at iypforum. On behalf of the IYPF, we hope you're staying safe and healthy. See you next time on The Global Generation.